Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. Uh, we're very pleased that you could join us for this uh, discussion of the um, so-called drug war. Um, a few years ago, uh, I'm sorry, a few weeks ago, we did a similar Hill briefing on the international drug war. I encourage you to check that out. You can do so at our website, cato.org, in the archived events section. You can watch that presentation in its entirety. It's a really good uh, Hill briefing, as today's will be. Um, and in just a matter of days, we'll have this briefing posted online as well, if you want to check that out. Uh, because we have four speakers in limited time, I'm just going to give a, a real quick introduction of our first speaker, and we'll get right to the meat of the program. Uh, first speaker is Tim Lynch. He's the director of Cato's Project on Criminal Justice. Um, he's a leading voice on a number of issues, including uh, uh, the war on terrorism, overcriminalization, the drug war, militarization of police tactics, and, uh, and gun control. Uh, back in 2000, he served on the National Committee to Prevent Wrongful Executions. Uh, Tim is a native of Wisconsin, and uh, therefore he has both of his degrees from uh, Marquette <coughs> University of BS and a JD. And with that, I'll turn things over to Tim. Thanks, Brandon. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. It's good to see such a great turnout uh, on this subject. As the first speaker uh, on this panel, uh, what I want to do is lay something of a foundation for the other talks that are going to follow. Uh, here on the Hill, drug policy is divided up among many different committees. I know that some of the committees are looking at uh, sentencing reforms this year. Other committees are overseeing uh, federal agencies, such as the DEA and Customs. And some committees are focused on the international aspect of the drug war, such as aid packages to Mexico and Colombia. What we want to do today is take a few steps back from those narrow questions, at, ne at least uh, initially, kind of take stock of uh, where we are on drug policy and where we need to go, and then uh, discuss the most constructive steps towards moving in that direction. Over the years, uh, Cato scholars and analysts uh, have compared the drug war to the misguided attempt to ban the liquor industry during the 1920s. It's not a perfect analogy, but it works well enough. Because in each instance, the government spent a ton of money on the enforcement side of things. The criminal justice system expanded, and what we saw was a lot of people getting arrested, a lot of people being prosecuted, and a lot of people going to jail. But in both instances, the policy, uh, especially with the drug war, despite the, the effort, the amount of money, and the l busy law enforcement agencies in our busy courthouses, it hasn't stopped drugs from coming into the country, it hasn't stopped people from using drugs, and it hasn't kept drugs away uh, from our kids. What the policy has done is produce a lot of crime. In the past year, we've seen horrific levels of violence uh, uh, in Mexico. Uh, the policy produces a lot of corruption, and we get um, a lot of curtailment of our civil and constitutional rights. So if a policy is to be judged according to its actual effects, instead of just its promised benefits, I think you'd come to the conclusion that our drug policy here in the United States has been a failure. And what's new and interesting, though, is that finally the political climate, especially over the past year, is increasingly coming to this realization. I mean, a lot of people have had this position for a long time, but the political climate is definitely shifting, and I want to give you some examples of that. These are just a few uh, headlines from newspaper clippings uh, from my file that I've gathered over the past year, 18 months. First one is, Canadian government tries anew to decriminalize marijuana. Another one, Argentine president calls for decriminalization of drug use. Another one, Swiss voters back legalized heroin. And recently, three former heads of state, Mexico, Brazil, and Colombia, have come together to blast the U.S. prohibition model as not the way to go, as is saying it's time to change a direction. Even here in the United States, the political climate is changing very quickly. This past November, voters in Massachusetts uh, approved a ballot initiative to decriminalize marijuana. In New York, lawmakers are finally revisiting the famous Rockefeller drug laws in that state. The Rockefeller drug laws were put in place in the 1970s, very harsh mandatory minimum sentences that are leveled against nonviolent drug offenders. The new Attorney General, Eric Holder, recently announced that the Obama administration is going to stop DEA drug raids in California and the other states that have changed their laws so as to allow medical marijuana. So that is another policy shift that we've seen. And most importantly, Senator Jim Webb, the Democrat from Virginia, 
has called for a national commission to take a top-to-bottom review of our criminal justice system. Uh, and he's made it clear that that includes a reexamination of our drug laws. There was a very good profile of Senator Webb's uh, initiative in yesterday's Washington Post, but you have to go to the style section to find it. It was a very good article. I don't know why they tucked it away back there. But in just the past few months, also kind of another indication of the changing political climate in the United States, there have been many columnists and pundits that have been suddenly speaking out on this subject. Eugene Robinson in the Washington Post, Clarence Page in the Chicago Tribune, Jack Hafferty on CNN, uh, Joel Klein in, ta- in Time Magazine. Over on the right side of the political spectrum, we've seen people like Dennis Prager and Pat Buchanan. All, all of these people have said it's time to rethink the prohibition model. So all of this is to the good, but still we're here on Capitol Hill and we know that the predisposition of policymakers is to move slowly and cautiously to kind of take politically safe small steps in the direction of reform. So in the limited time that we have today, what we want to do is focus on some of these intermediate steps, which ones are appropriate, which ones are possible given this new political climate. In my view, the drug policy debate here on Capitol Hill for too long has been framed really around two basic questions. The first one is, it seems like each year the first question that comes up is how much more money should we put into the drug war effort? And then the second question is where should we put that money? Should we put it on the enforcement side or should we put it on the treatment side? So as the years go by, we see some of these marginal changes. We have more money being spent. Sometimes it's on the enforcement side. Sometimes it's on uh, the treatment side. I think over the next four months is going to tell us whether the Obama administration and whether the leaders of this Congress are going to break out of this old paradigm of just more money and then where do we spend it. I think there's basically two paths that lie ahead. Um, and as I said, I think we'll soon, it will soon be clear which road uh, this government is going to travel over the next two years. One is to stay within this old paradigm that I just mentioned. Or two, it's going to be a fundamental reshift of, uh, of the debate. Um, the way I see it, if a year or two from now we look back uh, and we find that uh, more money is being spent on drug courts, uh, more money is being sent to, to Mexico and to Colombia to enhance their drug enforcement efforts, uh, perhaps we will see uh, uh, there have been bills introduced to change uh, sentencing, the disparity between crack cocaine and powder cocaine sentencing. Now, that's a real problem that needs to be addressed. But what I'm saying is if we look back <coughs> on this time period now, two years from now, and these are the only changes that we've seen, uh, more money for drug courts, uh, more money for foreign governments to enhance their enforcement efforts, and we see this tweaking of sentencing policy on crack and powder cocaine. I think this will have represented a huge opportunity uh, that has been squandered. So in the time I have remaining, what I want to do is sketch out a bolder set of reforms that I think are both appropriate and feasible given this new political climate. First, get solidly behind this effort by Senator Jim Webb to create a national commission that is going to take a top-to-bottom review of the criminal justice system. Uh, Senator Webb deserves a lot of credit for for doing this. A lot of politicians just do not want to tackle this tough subject. Um, so he's he's gotten out there and he's been doing a good job of laying the, the political groundwork to get this commission into place. And I think the administration and the leadership of the Congress should, should really get behind this because if you want to tackle the problem of mass incarceration in the United States, you just can't look at the conditions of our prisons or focus on some of these re-entry issues about all of these people leaving the prisons and what programs are in place for them when they return to the community. Those are all legitimate issues, but if you're going to get at the root of the problem of mass incarceration, you have to look at the front end of the system, the laws that are drawing so many people into the system in the first place. And those are our drug laws that are driving the incredible uh, statistics on, our, on arrests and incarcerations. Second. We need to end the warfare-like mentality that is now pervasive throughout the federal government. Now, to his credit, the new drug czar, Gil uh, Kurlikowski, has said it's time to move away from this war rhetoric and war mentality. But again, the government needs to take concrete steps to reverse policies that have fed this war mentality. I know Mayor Shaikalvo is going to have some things to say about this, but very briefly, the Pentagon uh, gives military weaponry to local police departments for free or at steep discounts. The mayor of Boston was in the news recently because he had found out that his police department was going to acquire a stock of M16 rifles, 
and he did not want that to happen. So he was in the news trying to resist this effort to bring all of this military hardware to Boston. But I have to tell you, this is rare for a politician like this to stand up, and it's very hard for him to resist the argument because he will be encountered with this argument. It's like, well, look, the Pentagon is already giving this stuff away. If we don't take it, other localities, townships and cities are going to take it. So why don't we take it? We'll warehouse it. We'll keep it just in case. You know, we'll, 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 then we'll discuss the means by which these weapons are, are going to be used. So it's a very tough argument to be overcome. So what the Congress should do is simply to stop these massive giveaways uh, and these steep discounts, which really distorts the decision-making process at the local level. If they had to spend a lot of money on this weaponry, and we would see a lot more prudent decision-making. But when they're giving it away, it tends to distort uh, the decision-making at, at the local level. Third, discard mandatory minimum sentences for, for federal drug offenses. These mandatory minimum drug laws are crude instruments uh, that too often produce cruel consequences. It's just not an intelligent use of our limited prison space to level these lengthy prison sentences against low-level players who are simply driving drugs across the border or against these petty uh, dealers on the street corners. These are the people at the very bottom end of the totem pole in the black market drug trade. They do not have a lot of information to give or to offer to prosecutors. So they're no normally the ones that are bearing the brunt of these long uh, mandatory minimum sentences that are so often so disproportionate to the offense uh, for which they've been charged. Now, on this issue, I should also mention, if they're going to change mandatory minimums, that means the Congress has to get involved and to write re or rewrite the laws. There are some things the Obama administration can do if the Congress is not moving in that direction or is moving too slowly. The things the administration can do on its own to uh, kind of move this debate along. Number one, he can commute the sentences of people in our system who are under these long, lengthy, mandatory minimum sentences. We have some very... We do have some very conservative judges out there, federal district judges, that have been disturbed by the sentences that they have to give out to drug offenders uh, because of the mandatory minimum law says that they have to. And they've written opinions saying that they think that this is wrong, this is inappropriate, and they've basically written into their opinions recommendations for executive commutation. This is the type of thing, when you have conservative judges writing these things into their opinion, I think the Obama administration should be paying attention and should act on some of these cases. Uh, and it can draw more attention to what is happening in the drug policy field. Another thing that they can do, uh, this is something they can do with a stroke of a pen with an executive order, is he can have his federal prosecutors um, stand by. Right now they would object if uh, a defense attorney wanted to bring to the attention of a jury the sentence for which a defendant might be facing. They kind of keep the mandatory minimum sentences away from juries. They kind of keep that information on the QT, quiet. That's the way they like it. But that policy can change overnight if the president wants, to, wants it to. He can have his prosecutor simply not object. So when defendants go to trial, if they want to bring the attention to the jury that this person is not facing two or three years in prison, they're looking at 10, 15, 20 years, um, that is a policy change that uh, can move reform along. I sometimes hear this talk that we want to restore the faith of people in our criminal justice system. To me, this is a good place to start because too often jurors feel used and abused when they feel that they've been kind of misled. They think the person, yeah, they're guilty. They think they're facing maybe two or three years in prison. Then they find out later that the person is going to be in jail for 15 years, 20 years, or even longer, and they feel that they've been kind of misled and have been participated uh, and fooled into participating into a miscarriage of justice. So I think this is another thing uh, that policymakers um, um, should be uh, revisiting and considering. Fourth, the predisposition here on the Hill is always uh, or too often uh, to create or to expand uh, existing programs or to pass new laws. But if the federal government would simply step back a bit, movement towards reform I think would actually accelerate. Let me give you two quick examples of this. Other countries are ready to liberalize. I read some headlines before about other countries that are, want to move in the direction of, of uh, liberalization. At Cato, we put out a study back in April that I think is part of your packages about uh, uh, drug laws in Portugal. In 2001, they moved to decriminalize all drugs. And there was a debate there at the time. They said this is a mistake. A lot of people said we're making a mistake. 
uh, drug use will spike, we'll have a public health crisis. Others said Portugal is going to become a haven for drug tourists. So what we did with the Cato study is that they made this move in 2001. Plenty of years have passed, so it's time to study the results to see what had happened. There hasn't been a spike in drug use. There hasn't been uh, an influx of drug tourists to Portugal. And that the interesting thing that hasn't gotten a lot of attention about what's going on in Portugal is that the political consensus in that country has totally shifted. There's really no movement to say, you know, we made a mistake, we need to return. Everybody is just basically on board with their decriminalization effort. So other countries are now beginning to look at what Portugal has done. And again, what Washington should do is just let these other countries move in the direction of liberalization. Do not uh, uh, lean on them to maintain the hardline criminal approach. And I would also make the same recommendation for here in the United States. Our state governments are moving in the direction of reform. Governor Schwarzenegger says it's time to study the decriminalization of marijuana. Other states are moving to reform their laws with respect to medical marijuana. If Washington would just let these reform efforts continue and stop the interference and lobbying, um, reform will continue to accelerate. Now, I'm just about out of time, so uh, let me quickly conclude. If we really want to see a reversal in the mass incarceration that we've been seeing in this country over the past 20 years, if we really want to see a reversal in the militarization of law enforcement and policing in this country, if we really want to see a, re a sharp reduction in the amount of black market violence that we've seen in Mexico, in other parts of Latin America, and even here in the United States, then I think we have to see uh, more decisive policy steps discussed here in Washington than the ones that we've seen so far. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Our next speaker is Mayor Shai Calvo. He is the uh, current mayor of Berwyn Heights, Maryland. Uh, he was elected to that role in 2004. And may, many of you may be familiar with his, uh, with his name and his story. It's a very moving and powerful story about a, a drug raid gone wrong. And uh, we had him a couple months ago come speak at the Cato Institute, and I think there are very few dry eyes left in the building afterwards. So with that, I'll turn things over to Mayor Calvo. Good afternoon. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate Cato for sponsoring uh, this event. Uh, my job, uh, I guess, this afternoon is to share with you a story and some perspectives uh, that uh, have really been part of a, a personal journey that I've taken with my family in the last year. Um, just first let me say the town of Berwyn Heights, it's an inner beltway community in Prince George's County. It was uh, founded a little more than 100 years ago, and I've been privileged to be the mayor of Berwyn Heights for um, a little over five years. Uh, uh, it's a fantastic community and one that uh, uh, usually goes without much notice. Uh, However, on July 29th of last year, uh, my family and I were terrorized by an errant Prince George's County SWAT team. This uh, paramilitary force uh, forced entry into my home without a proper warrant. They shot and killed our two black Labradors, uh, Peyton and Chase, and they bound and interrogated my mother-in-law and I as part of a four-hour ordeal. Um, I was hurrying to a community meeting. Uh, my mother-in-law was, was, was cooking dinner at the stove when uh, I was upstairs changing. I was actually in the middle. I just walked my dogs. I picked up this box on our steps, and I was, uh, brought it inside. And I, heard my, I was upstairs changing to get ready for a community meeting when I heard my mother-in-law scream, something that made no sense. I ran to the window to saw these men in black approaching my house. Moments later, I heard the explosion of our door being kicked open. Uh, my mother-in-law screaming, gunfire. I was brought downstairs at gunpoint. Um, it was part of a four-hour ordeal. My um, mother-in-law was bound. Probably I, we were both bound for almost two hours, uh, and it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare in any stretch of your imagination. It's you know your home was invaded. Uh, of, you know, of course, after this four-hour ordeal, they found nothing to connect us to a box of drugs that they had delivered to my home, uh, and I placed unopened on a. Uh, table uh, in front of the window before I went upstairs to change. Uh, you know, it was it was a nightmare in every sense. But it, you know, four hours later, they 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 did leave, and they left us with 
you know, an unsecured door, a, a, a house that had been turned upside down, and two enormous pools of blood, one in the living room, one in the dining room. Uh, Chase, my younger dog, was shot uh, from behind by an MP5 submachine gun. Uh, Peyton was shot by two different shooters with handguns. Uh, but at some, you know, at some level, that's just the beginning of the story. Uh, it, it really it just starts there. Because in the end, like I said, they found nothing to connect us. And in many ways, I would tell you that my family and I are incredibly blessed because, uh, you know, our community rallied. No one that we knew thought we were drug traffickers. Uh, it was never even considered. Uh, it made a lot of attention, a lot of media. Uh, eight days later, the Prince George's County Police arrested a FedEx driver who was actually the drug trafficker and an accomplice uh, in a drug smuggling ring. And... Uh, I got to tell my story live on CNN internationally, uh, and we were exonerated within 10 days. Uh, and what's extraordinary about my case is not that it happened, is that it actually people paid attention. Uh, and I think that's what I've come to understand, because for as much as the nightmare it was, the worst part was the county reaction to it, which offends the conscience. They concluded very quickly quote, their guys did what they were supposed to do. Um, they recently, just in the last month, released an investigation, which the sheriff, who was his SWAT team, was a county police investigation, <coughs> said that his deputies operated to the fullest extent of their abilities. Um, the county executive even offered a pat on the back for everybody involved. That's a direct quote. And what, what I, you know, for me, the personal journey after the event was trying to understand how could this happen? How could a paramilitary force kick in the door of uh, uh, an innocent family, much less the mayor of the town, and have done so little investigation that they didn't know I was the mayor? They hadn't Googled my name. Uh, <laughs> they knew nothing about us. Uh, I've lived in a lovely little suburban area. They, they had done no work because apparently this is how they operate. They, the first thing they do is get a SWAT team. They shoot first. They ask questions later. And so, you know, Everyone has their way of dealing with things. My, you know, inexpensive form of therapy was try to understand it and ask a lot of questions. And what astounded me after it happened was there was virtually no information available. I asked Prince George's County Police. I filed a, a Public Information Act, which is a FOIA version in Maryland, a FOIA in Maryland. You know, how many times have you deployed SWAT teams in a year? They wouldn't answer that. Eventually, through an un informal source, I learned about 700 times um, in 2007. Um, they indiscriminately do it for drug warrants. Um, and this is what they do. And as I come to understand this, I try to, well, how do these things play out? Uh, you know, I, I started walking down this path. And as I realized so little information was available, Prince George's County defended it, circled the wagons, refused. I did have a recourse in going to the state legislature. And, and um, I worked with some lawmakers to develop what, what is its first-in-the-nation legislation uh, essentially created an oversight mechanism for SWAT teams. Uh, and on May 19th, Governor Martin O'Malley signed the nation's first statewide oversight mechanism that requires that any law enforcement agency in the state of Maryland that has a SWAT team must periodically report, share that information on how many times, where, why, what authorization, and the result of these SWAT team deployments. That became effective on July one. And it's something I'm really proud of. That's something good. It's meaningful to us. It's something you know, good came from our mechanism. You know, because in the course of this process, I have met so many people who have remarkably similar stories to ours as far as what happened in our home that day. But no one came to tell their story. And it's, you know, what the legislative process in Maryland was fascinating to me, not because, you know, Lawmakers listened. They expected my story. But there was opposition. The police, the state police of chief, uh, chiefs of police, um, the state sheriff association, you know, state sheriffs, uh, the state fraternal order of police, all absolutely opposed the legislation we were pushing. Again, we were pushing an oversight mechanism. It was transparency. It didn't say how that could do these deployments. It didn't say why. It didn't limit them in any way. It merely said they had to tell people after the fact, and there would be a statewide review by the governor's office at the end of the year to explain you know, paramilitary uh, deployments. And they opposed it. And they opposed it on the grounds that, essentially, you shouldn't legislate oversight. These things should be worked out in training. Lawmakers should not be setting the rules for them. And, and essentially, they were saying they didn't need oversight. And 
at some level, even though the bill passed the Senate uh, 43 to nothing and I think 123 to 12 in the House uh, and was signed in the go- by the governor, they opposed it to the end because they did not want people to know about what was happening. And this, to me, was a first step, not a last step. Because as I got into understanding SWAT teams, what you start to realize is that paramilitary activities are fundamentally different from what police regularly do. I mean, I, I'm a mayor of my town. I have a police force, although, you know, no one ever asked me about it. Uh, Prince, you know, Berwyn Heights actually set a record low crime rate last year. Uh, the worst thing that happened in my town was, was, was this raid by the county. Um, LAUGHTER uh, you know, but these paramilitary forces are out there operating in our community, sometimes as a first resort, and as a result, no one really knows about it. But when you think about what they do, they are fundamentally different from a, a police. They don't, you know, they're not about due process. They're not respecting their rights. They're not serving, protecting. They're searching and destroying. They're overpowering, and they're operating in a different way. They're what I thought we didn't have happen in this country. It's really something akin to what you expect to see happening in a war zone, Iraq, uh, Afghanistan. Um, and the response of the elected officials to sort of bury their heads in the sand was really disturbing. Um, and, and I understand and I respect that police have a very difficult job to do. Many of them are heroes. But in any profession, if you don't give people oversight, you start to see the standards of operations lapse. If you don't hold people to the highest standards, you know, a culture develops. And police have a different, difficult job in a difficult world. And under the best of circumstances in any profession, if you don't give them oversight, um, you know, things are going to wane. Banks, for instance. Uh, but when you give someone a badge, a gun, and a special trust, it seems to me you should also give them the oversight to make sure that they're not abusing that special trust. And I think what's happened in a lot of places is the oversight mechanism has waned. Elected officials like myself haven't done that part because that's not as sexy and it's hard. It's hard standing up to a police chief. I wasn't very comfortable doing it when I was first elected. And we had to, I had to work at that relationship to make sure that he knew he worked for me. And I didn't get involved in operational matters, but I set parameters. I set policies and I set guidelines and I demand that he had to follow them. I can also tell you, I've had to fire a couple police officers very, very difficult, very hard to do. But when they file false statements, they don't get to be police officers anymore. That's the deal. And unfortunately, that standard isn't adhered to. So um, the Maryland law was a success, and I'm really proud of what we were able to do there. But I also recognize it doesn't stop there. It starts there. And I've continued to look into the issue, and I've been thinking more about federal policy because what happened in my house isn't – you know, in isolation. What happens in Prince George's County? While, mind you, an outlier in a troubled county in many ways, I say that as a lifelong resident and elected official there, um, it's not unique. And you start realizing when you dig a little deeper that there are federal policies that actually promote this type of behavior, this paramilitarization under, um, by, by police. I mean, I'm thinking of burn grants, which uh, is a very popular program and, and probably has a lot of merits to it. But there are also challenges. And Prince George's County got $860,000 this year in burn grant money. And essentially, there are federal subsidies being put towards what they did at my house. Um, but what's the oversight mechanism for burn grants? My understanding is all they have to report is the number of arrests and the amount of drugs seized. I mean, I get a monthly report on parking tickets issued in the town of Berwyn Heights. If Congress is funding paramilitary operations, I don't think it's unreasonable to ask the same questions that the Maryland law requires law enforcement in Maryland to provide. At a minimum, how are they using the money? If you look into burn grants, that information is not required. Um, Drug forfeiture laws. Prince George's County declares about $2.5 million in revenue this year on drug forfeiture laws. Under the federal act, there's a federal fund. It's kind of complicated. I'm trying to understand it. But it's basically a mechanism they use to seize cash and items for sale in these drug raids. When they came into my house, they were looking for cash. They, were, they found some yard sale money and got all excited and turned out it was $68 of the yard sale in the back of the envelope. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they have a, a fund in Prince George's County at $7.4 million. They're using the money they get in these raids to fund their operations. They're doing this under federal law. Where's the federal disclosure to require that they actually say? And a lot of these things, you don't have to find them guilty. You just have to put, you basically put the burden of proof on the person you get the, where you get the property to tell you uh, what they 
you know, they tell them that they have to prove they're not a drug dealer to get their property back. Um, Prince George's County is using this as a revenue source, as are counties and municipalities across the country. It seems that at a minimum, and I'm not saying these laws are all bad. I'm saying that we don't know because there's no oversight. Um, also, federal court case. Recently in 2006, a 5-4 Supreme Court decision, Hudson v. Michigan, put in place, basically made knock-and-announce violations, uh, accepted them from the exclusionary rule. So when law enforcement is supposed to knock-and-announce their presence with a search warrant, like they were in my house, um, they, when they violate that, they can still use what they find on the other side of that door in, to prosecute the people inside. So where you know, standard you know, jurisprudence, you know, dating back to 1913, says you exclude you know, the fruit of a poisonous tree, that doesn't apply to knock-and-ounce violations. If you're a good detective and you just want to get inside that house, well, the drug dealer's not going to sue you, so why knock when you don't have to? And so you're seeing a real some federal case law that's actually promoting these types of forced entries that raise real questions. But it seems to me, ultimately, that... Law enforcement is, has been pushed in this direction as part of the war on drugs, as part of a natural tendency. I don't know. I, don't, I will be humble to say I don't know. But I know some things are happening right now that are troublesome. They trouble me, and they've affected me. But they should also trouble each of you. And I think it's, it's time to change the conversation a little bit and cast some spotlight. You don't, you know, police get really defensive. I've, I've had to deal with that myself and you know in individual matters but sometimes you still have to push through that and ask the questions and because to me it's not about you know are SWAT teams bad or good there are certainly times when SWAT teams are appropriate it's not a it's not about is you know drug trafficking a serious crime and it should be something that we should pursue of course it is but it is about what kind of police do we want to have what do we expect from the police driving down our streets going into our communities what type of attitude do we want to promote Berwyn Heights has a record low crime rate last year because the type of community policing that we advance, the relationships that we build with um, the neighbors, because police can't do it alone. And what we're seeing develop on the streets, especially in urban areas, the high crime areas, is a confrontational relationship. And I think it's very troubling. And the way to get back to that, yes, is to set standards. And we all give the lip service to community policing and cops grants and all that stuff. And those, those are great. But we also have to couple those ideals that we establish with oversight and begin to build into the laws that we pass each at our own level accountability reporting and and, and oversight and i think as part of that we can probably move into a broader direction and i'll say as you know i there are probably a lot of things here today that i don't really have personal opinions on one way or the other and there's a whole lot of stuff that i'm thinking about new for the same time but i do think the Web Commission as a mechanism to begin to have a better conversation about criminal justice in general is a great start. There's some specific things you can do, but I think we need to begin to raise questions because too often in our society we don't even touch issues because they're seen as taboo or seen as difficult. I think a lot of these fall into that category, and I think the first thing we need to change is that and begin having a dialogue, and then maybe we can begin to turn this big ship around and move law enforcement in a direction that both protects our public, which is very important, but also respects and protects our civil liberties, which I would suggest is equally important. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks. Our uh, next speaker is Pat Nolan. He is the vice president of uh, the Prison Fellowship and also heads up the Justice Fellowship, which is their criminal justice reform arm. If you're not familiar with the Justice Fellowship, they work to reform the criminal justice system uh, based on the principles of restorative justice found in the Bible. Uh, prior to joining Justice Fellowship, uh, Pat served 15 years in the California State Assembly. Pat. Thank you, and uh, thank you to Cato for sponsoring uh, this important uh, discussion. Um, uh, as was mentioned, I served in the California State Legislature. I was reliably a tough law and order legislator and carried several bills that had mandatory minimums and increased uh, penalties for drug crimes and expanded the California prison system. I was then prosecuted uh, for a campaign contribution that I accepted and was part of an FBI sting and served uh, for two years in a federal prison, a little over two years, 29 months. 
and had a chance to see from the other side um, the impact of the laws that uh, I'd uh, so strongly supported in the legislature, in particular the drug laws, um, because uh, within our prisons, uh, the majority of the uh, prisoners are either uh, were uh, addicted at the time on drugs at the time of their arrest or were involved in some way in dealing with drugs. It's estimated by CASA up at Columbia that about 80% of those um, in our prisons uh, fall into that category. Um, the, the important thing that I didn't understand in the legislature was that the laws that we intended to go after Mr. Big and the um, moguls of uh, dr the drug trade weren't there. They aren't the ones being arrested. And the mandatory minimums that we were told would result in people ratting up the chain to get the drug kingpins weren't working. Instead, the sophisticated criminals knew the laws, and they were the ones that cut the deal early. They would immediately run and offer to give up other people, and they got very short sentences. And it was the person at the bottom of the chain that had nobody of value to the prosecutor to offer up that got the long sentences. Um, there was a special on the Discovery Channel, which I happened to see while I was in, in prison, and it was very interesting. It was a Walter Cronkite on the War on Drugs, and it turned out to involve a lady that was in the prison across the street from me. I was in a federal prison camp, and she was in the federal uh, women's detention, or the women's uh, uh, federal institution across the street. Uh, she was a girlfriend of a fellow who was dealing drugs. He himself was a small-time dealer. But uh, in order to get a shorter sentence, he said that she was involved in every aspect of their crimes. Her involvement had been taking two phone messages for him, but he was willing to testify that she lived her grand lifestyle, which was really pretty modest, but she had lived this grand lifestyle uh, and knew of all of his deals and was essentially his partner in their drug crimes, so he got a lower sentence, and she got a five-year <clears throat> sentence. While she was in prison, she was on the phone with her mom, and her mom began screaming. Uh, she knew something terrible was going on on the other end. She got the attention of the correctional officer there, and he was fortunate enough to be a bright one who thought and called the local police, and the police went out and caught a man in the act of raping her mom. He was arrested, tried, convicted, did his time for rape, and walked free while this girlfriend that had taken two messages remained in prison on her drug sentence. Now that offends any sense of justice that, that we have. In a rational world, that makes no sense that somebody we're afraid of, this rapist, would do less time than somebody that we're irritated at. You know, she, we're, we're, we don't want her dealing drugs and taking messages from her druggy boyfriend, but my God, we don't want her to serve longer time than uh, the, um, the p people uh, that are violent. And one of the things we say at Justice Fellowship is prisons are for people we're afraid of, but we fill them with people we're mad at. And it's a great cost, not only to the individuals who are incarcerated that way, it's a great cost to the public. Because uh, while they're incarcerated, they cannot support their family. They oftentimes have children. That burden either falls on relatives who aren't prepared, a grandmother or an aunt or something to take care of them, or on the public. They go on welfare. In addition, the costs of them returning to society, they don't come out better than they go in. You know, that, that's the sad reality. The skills they learn to survive inside prison are of necessity antisocial and make it more difficult for them to live productive, contributing lives uh, when they get out. And that's a burden to society. <clears throat> we spend $68 billion on our prison system today. $68 billion, of which a majority is to incarcerate people that we're mad at, that we're not afraid of. There are better ways to handle the folks we're mad at. Society has a right to say don't use drugs, but the real question is, how's the best way to treat that? Do we gain by throwing them in prison? And the reality is, no, treatment in the community is shown time after time to be much more cost-effective. Now, they're sent to prison, and the myth that as a legislator, I assume they all got treatment. Wrong. They don't get less than 10% of the prisoners that have a drug addiction are treated while they're in prison. 
And Joe Califano, former secretary of HEW, who now is at CASA at Columbia, says to take an addict and lock them up for 5, 10, or 15 years, but do nothing about their underlying addiction, and then release them on society is a fraud. It's an absolutely fraud on the taxpayers. They're still an addict when they get out. We've done nothing to deal with their addictive behavior, but we've cost the public a fortune, and we've destroyed their lives. Why, why does that make sense? As a conservative, I questioned every uh, uh, field of government, Cal OSHA, Caltrans, the DMV, but somehow I turned a blind eye to our prisons. And I think it's time the conservatives starting, started holding our prisons accountable and our criminal justice system accountable for making things better. Locking them up and doing nothing about their uh, underlying drug addiction is not making things better. We could save much more money treating them in the community, letting them pay child support to their families, letting them hold real jobs, and hold them accountable to show up at their appointments. A judge in Hawaii, Steve Ahm, um, who is a former uh, U.S. attorney there, now a state judge, has a program uh, for the uh, probationers where they come into court, and if they're dirty, they go straight to jail. But not for six years, which is usually what happens when they're violated, they do the end of their whole sentence, but for 24 hours. And it's a way of hitting them up the side of the head and say, we're serious about this. Get back in treatment. A lot of these folks are just knuckleheads that can't follow the rules. We need to help them follow the rules. Our object is to get them into treatment, not to send them to prison and be a burden on the taxpayers. A couple of things. In addition to the physical cost of uh, holding them in prison and of supporting their families, there's a tremendous cost to society and the um, denigration and degrading of our law enforcement that Mayor Calvo uh, so uh, rightly pointed out. He puts a face on the militarization of our police. Uh, and it's, uh, when I was a kid, there was a bumper sticker that was very popular, uh, support your local police and keep them independent. Those were prescient people. They knew the danger of federalizing law enforcement. And uh, one of the things that they found is if you have all this SWAT equipment and all this SWAT training, the temptation is to use it. I mean, you've gone through all this, let's, let's use it. And so what you do is you dumb down the criteria for doing it so you're using it the drop of a hat and terrorizing innocent people. And Mayor Calvo's situation is not an exception. There are thousands of cases across this country that happen, some of which sadly result in death of the totally innocent people. A grandfather in the uh, Sacramento Valley area shot with his two grandchildren staying over on a sleepover, shot dead in front of his grandchildren, and he wasn't involved at all. They had the wrong address. So we've, number one, undercut law enforcement that way, but also we've taken good people good, correction, or good uh, law enforcement people that want to do good for society but put temptation in their way. The amount of money involved in drugs is huge. I did time with a sergeant from the L.A. Sheriff's Department who said spread out on that table were $100 bills, a table about 10 feet by 4 feet, stacked at least 2 feet deep with $100 bills. And all he had to do was take his gym bag and scoop off a corner of it and he'd pay for his children's college education. And he succumbed to temptation. He knew it was wrong, he admitted it was wrong, he was caught red-handed, and he did his time. But why did we put a good man like that in the, the, the danger? I'm, I'm a Catholic and one of the things we say in the act of contrition is to avoid the near occasion of sin. Why would we put the near occasion of sin in front of an officer like that? We've, by um, having these huge penalties for drugs, we've driven up the cost so much that billions of dollars are involved in it. And that's why this officer, who otherwise would have been a terrific police officer, gave in to temptation that was put there in front of him. Why dangle that in front of him? We've also eviscerated the Bill of Rights, has been discussed. Asset forfeiture, uh, uh, again, offends uh, decency. One of the interesting things, and those of you that work for a congressman, I hope one of you will ask your boss to put in an appropriations bill a study, because I've been told by a police chief uh, from a large city on 95 that this is the case. The northbound arrests are a tiny fraction of the southbound arrests, uh, the asset forfeitures. And why is that? Northbound, they're bringing the drugs into the city. The poison is coming into our city and corrupting our youth. Southbound, the cash is going out. And they, if, they, if they seize drugs, they have to destroy it. It's of no value to the department. 
if they seize the cash, they get to use it. They get to buy the fancy cars. They get to seize the car, the, the fast car that the guy was involved in. So it's a profit-making. And we've corrupted whole departments based on this asset forfeiture law, too. It, there's an inherent conflict of interest to allow them to seize these assets, and they should be f force, uh, facing the northbound. The last thing I'll say to you is this has been a, an experiment, as prohibition was. It hasn't worked. And as conservatives, we need to admit when something hasn't worked and look at something more effective. George Washington warned us. He said, like fire, government is a useful servant, but a fearful master. Thank you. Well, our final speaker needs uh, very little introduction. He's a former congressman from Georgia, uh, served here in the House of Representatives from 1995 to 2003, and in 2008 he was the Libertarian Party nominee for president. Currently he's practicing law with the law offices of uh, Ed Edwin Marjorie, and he also runs a consulting firm, Liberty Strategies. Congressman Barr. Thank you. Thank you all. It is a, a real pleasure to be here uh, once again uh, at a program sponsored by uh, America's finest and most principled uh, public service organization, the, the Cato Institute. Uh, and judging by the, the usual excellence of this program, at least what's gone before me, I think everybody here can see why uh, Cato is such an outstanding organization. They're able to pull together uh, true experts uh, in uh, the particular field that they're focusing on, and I suspect that's why many of you all are here. Uh, as well because of that reputation. Uh, but we're also here today because uh, we want to do something about the problems that, uh, that the mayor uh, and uh, Pat uh, and Tim have talked about. We know there are problems out there. We know there is abuse of these laws. We know there is abuse of the asset forfeiture laws. We were able, uh, many of you all remember and may have participated uh, several years ago uh, in the asset forfeiture reform. Uh, that, uh, that we were able actually to get through uh, the, uh, the House and, and the Senate, and then uh, the President signed it. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, at that time, uh, I, I had the honor of working with uh, then-Chairman Henry Hyde of the Judiciary Committee in, in that effort, uh, and John Conyers, now-Chairman of the Judiciary Committee, uh, and Barney Frank, who was one of the senior members uh, on the Judiciary Committee. And I think it was the, the, on the same day that we had the, the vote in the House in which we passed this uh, very important, didn't go far enough, but at least very important uh, asset forfeiture uh, bill, uh, there was a reporter or, or a photographer, I guess, from the New York Times, and they took a picture just outside of the, off the floor of the House of uh, Henry Hyde and John Connors and Barney Frank and you know, this guy Bob Barr that was with them. And that appeared uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the New York Times, and then it showed up down in, 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 uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, and I still find people literally will come up to me when, when I talk about this issue or sometimes sua sponte on their own, they'll come up to me uh, and say, how did, how did they manufacture that picture? Uh, they, they really still, uh, uh, very truthfully, don't believe that here was an issue that would bring conservatives, so-called conservatives, and so-called liberals together. Uh, but uh, that's the sort of thing that really does work. I mean, uh, the, the, the Patriot Act, or at least uh, the remaining provisions of the USA Patriot Act that are up for reauthorization uh, this year, uh, several years ago, or back in 2005-2006, leading up to the initial round of uh, reauthorization debates on, uh, on the USA Patriot Act, uh, brought together a tremendously important and powerful group of people uh, and organizations from across the political spectrum uh, that talked about these issues spread out across Capitol Hill over about a two-year period, and even though we were not, uh, we ultimately were not successful in having those uh, constitutionally offensive provisions of the Patriot Act stricken or not reauthorized, we were able to generate a very, very significant debate and came very close, at least over in the Senate. Uh, uh, we actually held off debate uh, for a number of months, uh, held off a, a vote on it, that is, for a number of months. Uh, 
But uh, uh, here again, this year, we have a number of issues that lend themselves to the same sort of both principled and pragmatic debates that can actually result in getting something done, and that's what we're about. Uh, uh, many of you here today work here on the Hill for, for members, and is there anybody here from the, do we have some folks who work over on the Senate side uh, here that work on, on the Senate side as well? Uh, we're about trying to get some things done, and the issue that Cato has brought us uh, here today, together here today, is a tremendously important issue, but also one that lends itself to getting things done because there are, it can be addressed in so many different angles depending on one's constituency, uh, the issues that one's member or senator uh, champions and has credibility on. Uh, some constituents, uh, constituencies look at these issues from a pragmatic standpoint. Well, there are certain tremendous pragmatic arguments, some of which have already been discussed here, that lend themselves to a debate on, on reformulating and coming up with a more effective uh, and more principled uh, drug policy uh, in this country. Uh, you know, if, if we were talking about a, uh, a company and you had a board of directors or a CEO of a company, a CEO of the company that went back year after year after year after year to uh, his or her board of directors and said, uh, you know, the pro the, uh, we have as many people that are not buying our products now as before. We haven't been able to increase our bottom line. Our market share continues down. Uh, we're spending more money. Uh, but uh, keep me in office. Uh, keep uh, Vote me back in as a CEO. Give me more money, and I promise that next time I come before you, we'll show some improvement. Uh, you do that year after year after year, and sooner or later, uh, at least uh, prior to the economic and financial environment that we're dealing with, that Washington is dealing with now, uh, that CEO would have been laughed out of there. Uh, in, in the real world out there, if you have a policy that costs more and more and is less and less effective, uh, changes do come. Yet, of course, here in Washington, inside the, the Beltway, it's a very different world. It doesn't operate that way. But more and more, particularly in these economic times, when people are looking very hard at those appropriations and those earmarks, I think it becomes uh, much more important uh, and useful to talk about these issues, for example, in terms of the tremendous cost and the lack of effectiveness. Uh, there are indeed very pragmatic reasons to begin what Gil Kurlikowski, Kur uh, the new director of the uh, Office of National Drug Control Policy, is finally talking about out there, and that is to change the direction, change the perspective, beginning with the most rudimentary aspects of a policy, and that is how you talk about it. The language that you use, as we know here on the Hill, can frequently uh, dictate your chances for success way down the road. Uh, the proponents of the USA Patriot Act uh, were brilliant back in 2001 when they came up with, uh, with that ridiculous acronym, uh, the Uniting and Strengthening America to Prevent Acts and so on and so forth, uh, called down to the USA Patriot Act. Uh, how could you not vote against it? Are you unpatriotic? <laughs> a lot of the event chances for eventual success in a piece of legislation has to do with what you do initially to craft your legislation and even to the point of what you call it. Uh, and as uh, uh, Director Kurlikowski has indicated, uh, when you go out there and you talk, uh, you characterize something as a war, what do you do? You immediately cause people uh, to lock into their position. Uh, it's a war. Uh, we have to do battle. You have adversaries. You have enemies out there, and it's very difficult thereafter to ever move people away from uh, that, that mentality, that closed mentality. Uh, it becomes a question of the art of war as opposed to the art of the possible uh, to get some things done. There may be, though, for your member, your senator, constituencies back home that really don't care what it costs or what, uh, what the practical problems are. Uh, they, uh, they, uh, they look at, uh, at questions of legislation and priorities and appropriations more on principle terms. Here again, the issue of federal drug policy raises some fundamentally important and saleable, understandable uh, issues uh, based on principle. Principles of federalism, uh, for example, which everybody talks about but very few people actually practice. These are, in fact, very important uh, concrete principles that you can go to people when you look at the drug, federal drug policy appropriations and uh, legislation and authorities, talk to them in terms of principled arguments, such as issues of federalism and the proper role of government. 
uh, I think it's also important when we look at this as a practical issue here uh, to realize that we're not going to change it overnight. Uh, a lot here, again, of your eventual chances for success for a piece of legislation, whether it's uh, changing an earmark, an appropriation, uh, fundamental uh, authorization for a federal agency or whatnot, it depends on, on how large a bite do you take. You don't want to take too large a bite, otherwise you know, the process just can't digest it. So look at it in terms of you know, what are the issues out there that have the most the, the, the strongest legs, the most currency that aren't understandable to uh, your constituencies out there. Uh, the, here again, the federal drug issue is one uh, that is relatively easy to deal with or identify if you do it right. You recognize, for example, that if you, if you go out there and you immediately, despite maybe a philosophical predisposition to say we ought to legalize a whole range of so-called mind-altering drugs, uh, the fact of the matter is that most people aren't ready to make that step, to make that move no matter how good a job you do it as, as salesmanship. But if you go out there and you address uh, your concerns, your proposals, primarily, for example, to young people uh, who understand much more so than folks my generation uh, the issues of medicinal marijuana, uh, for example, it becomes, I think, readily apparent that that, that that is sort of a good point of the spear. That is an issue that has been out there. A number of state legislatures uh, have passed legislation in this area. Uh, it's been in the news. Young people understand it much more so than, than uh, than older people. Uh, so choose your issues wisely. Be, uh, do what Gil Kerlikowski has done. Be sensitive to the language that's used. Don't bite off too much at the beginning. Uh, prioritize your issues. And then it, it, it comes back to credibility. And here again, uh, what we're trying to do is build credibility for a federal effort. Uh, and when you, when you look back at how the Office of Nug, uh, National Drug Control Policy, the so-called drug czar's office, uh, has behaved in years past, it's very obvious that this is not uh, an office with a great deal of credibility to sell its message. And this be, use that tool to your advantage. And, and go out there and talk about the manner in which the resources, for example, of ONDCP have been misused uh, in recent years to engage in blatant political activity and violation in many people's view of the, of the Hatch Act, for example, uh, to talk about the manner in which the uh, hundreds of millions, if not, I guess, billions of dollars of federal monies have been used for the, uh, uh, the, the advertising, the anti-drug advertising message, uh, have been not just squandered and wasted, but, uh, but misused fraudulently. I mean, there have been criminal prosecutions about four or five years ago, was it, Tim, uh, with regard to, for example, uh, the ad agency Ogilvy & Mather up in, uh, up in New York uh, that had uh, engaged in fraudulent billing practices in order to inflate uh, the money that it was receiving from uh, the federal uh, anti-drug advertising media uh, campaign. Uh, so uh, here again, even if your entree isn't to present a positive reason for people to get on board and start looking at this issue and supporting some legislative and appropriations proposal, uh, you can go out there and you can do it uh, in terms of look at the way the current system has been abused, uh, both in terms of waste of taxpayer dollars, in terms of loss of credibility for law enforcement generally, uh, and uh, has done great injustice to the, to the notion of federalism uh, and so forth. It also, and this is particularly important uh, for our colleagues here today uh, who were over on the, uh, on the Senate side, Again, it also points out the importance, and we even on the House side need to, need to be sensitive to this because it's a good argument, the importance of the federal judiciary. Uh, that questions uh, probing uh, the views of a, uh, of a judicial nominee with regard to his or her views on issues of federalism, the proper scope of federal authority uh, in the drug area and these other areas uh, is extremely important. I mean, there's only, I think, is there just uh, maybe one... Uh, remaining justice, uh, Clarence Thomas, who was in the, the uh, dissent on the, on the race case, uh, I think. I mean, there's a lot of work that we have to do, uh, to do uh, up there on the, you know, in the federal judiciary. Uh, and this is a very important issue that ties right in to the work that we would hope to see also on the House side with regard to reorienting 
this entire debate to uh, bring credibility back to federal law enforcement uh, and to uh, engage in, in uh, the sort of, at least at the federal level initially, and, and I'm delighted that uh, both the mayor and, and Pat and, and Tim, all of them have talked about uh, the way federal resources have been misused uh, in, 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 in moving toward this, this dramatic militarization of law enforcement. Uh, there are, there's a whole, any way you look at the drug issue on any of these issues, principled or pragmatic uh, or both, uh, there are issues that I think can be taken out and highlighted and used by members of Congress and staff and senators uh, to, uh, to move this issue uh, forward. It's, it's a great issue. I think the country is ready for it. And I'm delighted that, uh, once again, Cato is really taking the lead uh, in getting this issue out there. But there are a lot of other organizations uh, that, uh, that we need to work with uh, as well. But uh, I appreciate uh, Cato taking the lead. And as always, it's, it's an honor to be part of that process. Thank you. Thank you.